You're listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Eric Barton. We're so glad you've joined us today, and as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter, at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday service now. Amen. Thanks, Matt. Darkness, gloom, Fear, uncertainty, doubt. Some of you think I'm describing your Christmas family gathering. (laughs) Not yet. Imagine a time, imagine a people, imagine a place where it seems as if things continue to decline. National leadership characterized by immorality and infidelity. Warrior nations oppressing economically all sorts of things from every border. Just use your imagination. Where we don't really understand all the things that are happening, but we're pretty sure we don't like it. I'm talking about, of course, Israel 2700 B.C. And the more things change, the more things stay the same. I've been thinking about you this Christmas season, this entire month, and through our Advent series, praying if I had a direct line to God the Father who is good and who actually wants better for you than what I want for you, what would I ask for you? And so that really has been sort of the vertebrae on the backbone of this entire Advent series. Sort of what I've just been praying, God, what would you give to these, your people? In the midst of darkness and gloom and uncertainty and frustration and irritation, dare I even say inconvenience, God, what would you have for these people? For me. Which is why we titled our Advent series, The Gift. Gift-giving, gift-receiving is such an integral part of much of our Christmas experiences, but I hoped this season to really spend some time discussing and describing and detailing, man, what God has given. And when I say given, I mean given because it's free, it's a gift. It's not earned nor obtained. About three weeks ago, we walked through Matthew chapter 2 in the narrative of the wise men who were summoned from the east by a star, and they were given the gift of joy because Jesus gives the gift of joy. And so as I thought about this gathering of people, this campus, this congregation, what would it mean to this city? What would it mean to the families and the households of this city if the people who came here regularly were characterized by joy, deep, fulfilling, abiding, authentic, sincere, bursting joy? Not that silly Pollyanna giddiness. No, 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 no. I mean joy. And then a couple weeks after, we looked at Luke chapter 2 and the narrative of the shepherds keeping watch by night in their fields. And we saw that Jesus gives the gift of worth, of meaning, of value, of significance, of matter, of weight. These insignificant, fringe, social, marginal nobodies, Jesus announces to them, or God announces to them by the angelic host that the Savior is born. Last week, Scott Gill led us through Luke chapter 1, and the gift to Mary was the gift of faith. Jesus gives the gift of faith. It's it's a precious thing to be able to believe in this sort of thing. 
Which leads us now finally to this December 23rd, two days before we officially celebrate the Christmas. And it leads to our big idea of the morning. We're going to look in a moment at Isaiah chapter 9. You've already heard it read this morning. But I'll go ahead and tell you that the big idea, the takeaway from this passage is that Jesus gives the gift of peace. So as I've thought about this month, this December, what would I desperately hope that God our Father would give to each and every one of you? Joy, worth, faith, and peace. Now just go with me for a bit. What if that happened? What if by the time you walked out of here, you knew that God had increased your joy, your worth, your faith, your peace? Well, hear this. I can tell you with all authority, it is God's desire for your life. Without question. Merry Christmas. So if you've got your Bibles, I want you to open them to Isaiah chapter 9. You've already heard Isaiah chapter 9 read in our Advent reading. I'm going to walk back through it very, very briefly. This is what I like to call the gospel according to Isaiah. Because gospel simply means good news, great story, awesome announcement. And Isaiah, well, Isaiah is just a Hebrew transliteration of the same name that is Jesus. Yeshua, Joshua, Isaiah. It's the same thing and it means God saves. It's a pretty good name. God's salvation is what Isaiah means. And Isaiah is writing some seven and a half centuries before the coming of Christ to a people who are experiencing all kinds of darkness and gloom and chaos. It says in Isaiah chapter 9, beginning in verse 1, But there will be no gloom. Now to really understand the importance of of what Isaiah is saying here, we have to understand that chapter 8 ends in darkness. I mean, literally, the last word of chapter 8 is darkness. It's not good news. See, the end of chapter 8 concludes this massive judgment oracle. Yay! The people of Israel were essentially fairly good and decent and moral, and they were shocked that their lives weren't going that great. In other words... This is an entire nation of people who were essentially doing whatever they wanted, generally following the rules when it suited them, and then they were shocked that God did not bless their efforts. Does it sound like anybody you know over the last, I don't know, two and a half thousand years? It's every people group ever. Leave us alone, let us do what we want, and then when it doesn't go bad and God doesn't bless us, we'll be shocked. The nation of Israel is in darkness. They have been oppressed on every side. The kingdom itself has been fractured. The kingdom lasts two, three kings, and then the thing splits in half, north to south. And so there is darkness at the end of chapter 8. And by the way, they deserve it. They deserve it. Condemnation has been brought on their own heads by themselves. He says, but there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. Now when I say they were in anguish, let me explain. It means they were in anguish. First Chronicles 15 tells us that God Himself, because of their sin, because of their rejection of Him, raised up a man named Tiglath-Pileser III. Let me just tell you, no place else in America on December 23rd are you learning about Tiglath-Pileser III. But this is important. He raises up this Assyrian man this general of the Assyrian armies who comes down and he absolutely devastates the northern part of Israel. 
They were brutal. They were savage. They were wicked. And God raised up that guy. They are in anguish. And they deserve it because they had rejected their God. But Isaiah chapter 9 says something amazing. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. They're going to get respite. They're going to get rescue despite they're not deserving it. See, that's very good news. That's the gospel. In the former time, he brought into contempt, God did, the land of Zebulun. That's the area in the north near the Mediterranean Sea. And the land of Naphtali. That's the land of the north to the east of the Jordan River. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea. The way of the sea is this, this highway that goes along the Mediterranean Sea that the Egyptians and the Assyrians would use as they conquered Israel. But Isaiah says there's coming a time when the highway of our destruction will be the thoroughfare of our blessing. The land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. Galilee represents the north, all the northern areas, and it's called Galilee of the nations, Galilee of the Gentiles. This is not how it's supposed to be. Galilee is of Israel. It's supposed to be for the covenant-keeping people of God. And here it's being called Galilee of the Gentiles. There's darkness, there's gloom, there's despair. Things aren't the way they're supposed to be. Verse 2, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Hebrew parallelism, he's going to repeat himself. Not only that, he's going to say the same thing again. Those who have dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. I love Isaiah 9.2. I'm not the only one who loves Isaiah 9.2. A man named Matthew wrote a gospel some seven and a half centuries later, and he claims Isaiah 9.2. In Matthew chapter 4, he references this verse. And he says, don't you see? This is that. This is the whole reason Jesus moved his ministry to Capernaum up in the north in Galilee so that he would fulfill the prophecy of Isaiah 9-2. He is the light that shines in the north. It's Jesus. Now, we know that, or I hope we know that, all these many millennia later, but in Matthew's day, he's saying, oh, that's why Jesus came out of Galilee. Nazareth, ew! Because the light shines in the darkness and they did not deserve it. That's grace. He says, God, you have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. Isaiah says, God, you have done a thing for these people who are in English, and they don't even understand. They don't even get how much they don't deserve it and how much you have done. He gives two examples of joy. He says, when, it's like the joy when you go out to do your harvest and you realize, yeah, there's like triple the amount of grain here. I know you're going, grain, awesome. What are we going to do with all this grain? It would be like this December 31st, you open your paycheck and Yahtzee, it's three times the normal amount. And you know it's December, you've barely been working at all. And you open that baby up and you're like, it's three times the joy. Ooh, now I can get that new remodeled bathroom or that new drone or I can buy more gum or whatever. It's a blessing you didn't earn. It's joy. Or maybe it's that joy that you get, you know, when you've vanquished your foes and you go to pillage all of their goods and treasures and you realize, oh, these people were sitting on tons of cash. And you take, no, never done that? No M&A lawyers in the room? Okay, fine, whatever. Anyway, you vanquished your foe, you've taken, and it's way more than you thought. It's a material blessing. It's that kind of joy. Isaiah says, in the midst of darkness and anguish and gloom, God, you have done this for them because you have given a promise. Because you've given a promise. 
And it goes like this, verse 4. For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. This is massive. We could spend weeks on this. I won't. It's just saying, Isaiah, speaking to God, God, you have flicked the Assyrians. And you've done it in an astonishing way. You've done it as in the day of Midian. Now, if I were to stand you each up and go, all right, everybody, you know what happened in Midian, right? Tell me what happened in Midian. You'd go, oh, I know. I just don't want to tell you. That's fine. Here's what happened in Midian. It's a man named Gideon. And Gideon destroys the armies of Midian with flashlights and a pitchfork. That's all he's got. And he starts screaming and hollering, and all the Midianites kill themselves. Ha ha. Why in the world is Isaiah talking about this? Because he's making a super important point. God shows his power in weakness. God shows his power in weakness and it's not what they're going to expect. Neither was Gideon. They were expecting like an F-15 flyover. No, they got jars of fire and some clubs. That's how God flicks the Assyrians through weakness because God is so sovereign, he does not need a display of strength. He will demonstrate himself as vulnerable and exposed and weak. Verse 5, For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. Merry Christmas. Look forward to having you all sing that around your tree. This, yeah, it's going to be great. What's going on here? The Assyrians were psychological warfarers. They were terrorists. They were known throughout the entire region as those that would absolutely frighten their enemies. If they killed you in battle they would dip their boots and their cloaks in your blood and wear it around. Ew. It was psychological warfare. And what Isaiah is saying, yeah, those people that did that, you will roll it all up and you will burn it in the fire. How's all that going to happen? Because we feel the pressure of the Assyrians. We feel all this stuff coming in on us. Well, verse 6, for to us, not us specifically, is Israel. For to us, a child is born. Not a superhero, not a warrior, not an avenger, not anybody with a cape who was born on some ice planet. No, 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 no. For to us, a child is born. A little 7.2 pound pink baby Jesus. Unto us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. Oh, let me just tell you, this is one of my favorite verses every time I turn on the TV and some talking head is squawking about this, that, or the other. There will come a day, just imagine, when there is no longer any politics whatsoever. Zero. There is no leader who is put between a rock and a hard place, has to do this on one side and do that on the other side. There is no more. The government is on his shoulder. It's the idea of it's a metaphor. Like a robe is placed on him, he carries the weight of the administration of the cosmos. And you can't pay him off. You can't buy him off. You can't offer him favors. He's God. And he will literally, rightly reign. The government will be on his shoulder. He will do it. There will be no more question of allegiance or parties or trying to get this thing done or get that thing done. He is the government. What a great... Can you just imagine? Because you're supposed to. Just let your mind go there. What's it going to be like when the righteous one who is incapable of sin in thought or word or deed is running everything? We're supposed to have a glimmer of hope 
towards that. The government will be on his shoulder and his name shall be called. And we're going to get four little doublets here. His name shall be called four things, eight words. Wonderful counselor. Is it wonderful or is it wonderful counselor? Yes. Yes, it's both. But the word wonderful is pelech in Hebrew. It's only ever used of God ever. Never is it used of a mere man. There are no cross references for this to other people. Peleh is only ever used of God. Way back in the book of Judges, the angel of the Lord appears to Manoah and says, you're going to have a baby. Manoah goes, that, yeah. Have you seen Mrs. Manoah? That ain't happening. No way. And the angel of the Lord says, stick with me, kid. It's going to happen. And Manoah says, what is your name? And the angel of the Lord says, it is Peleh. It is too wonderful for you. Wonderful counselor. He who gives divine direction. No longer wondering, waiting. I wonder if this is what God wants. I wonder if this is what God would do. I don't know. This one is wonderful. Attributing the miracles, the signs of God, and he's involved at the granular, personal level, giving divine direction. This is who this one is who will come. That's what Isaiah says. Not only that, he is mighty God, El Gibor. Way back in the book of Ruth, we meet a man named Boaz. And Boaz is the man. He's a hero. He is Gibor Chayil. He is a stud. That's the new Eric translation, not in the Hebrew. He's a hero. And Isaiah says, this one that will come is a mighty God. He is a heroic God. See, that's very good news. If you've got a strong and sovereign and powerful God, but he's not good, you're in trouble. But this one is a hero willing to stand and take death for the sake of another, says Hebrews 2. He is mighty God. He is heroic in his intervention with his people. But wait, there's more. He is everlasting Father. Unto us a child is born who is everlasting Father. How does that work? Well, he's not God the Father, but he is the essence of God, and he will reign as a Father, and there will never be a time when he does not. He reigns everlastingly. And this Jesus, who is God, but who is the Son, reigns with the same character and quality as God the Father forever. But wait, there's more. He is also the Prince of Peace, the Sar Shalom. When I say peace, I don't merely mean the absence of conflict. That's not peace. That's rest. That's a good thing. I mean peace. It's wellness and wholeness. All the way around. It's the way things should be in every facet imaginable. It's peace. He is the prince of peace. His unique role is to bring peace to the planet. Now there's something really wonderful going on in this little gospel according to Isaiah. You might remember that the Assyrian bad guy is named Tiglath-Pelesar. Well, Isaiah, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the first word he uses is Pele. That's for wonderful. The last one he uses is Sar for Prince, Pelasar. You think your general is a bad guy? There is one who is coming who is the Pelasar. He is wonderful, Prince, and he is God. You are in darkness. You are in gloom. But there will be one who will come who makes this Assyrian bad guy look like an amoeba. That's what Isaiah is telling his people. Well, verse 7, of the increase of his government and of peace. Oh, there's peace again. Shalom. 25 times Isaiah will use the word shalom because he knows that's what his people are in most desperate need of, shalom. 
There will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. I love that. The zeal of the Lord of the armies of heaven will do this. There is no program, there is no government, there is no cause, there is no GoFundMe that will accomplish this. Only the zeal of the Lord God. Now, I want to hoot and holler for just a moment, make a big deal about this, because we are alive in a time when most generations younger than mine sincerely, authentically believe that they can bring this to pass, and they mean it, and they're sincere, and God love them, they're wrong but it's not because they're dumb. Let's please stop using derogatory labels for generations that are younger than ours. They mean well. It's just that they'll never, ever solve it because only the zeal of the Lord God will accomplish it. And so, at least they're doing something. I get out of breath running to the fridge, okay? At least they have some gumption. But let's stop dividing generationally. Not helpful. Sort of an embarrassment to the church when the older generations merely wag the finger at the younger generations. Not helpful. And yet we can come alongside and lovingly say, this will come to pass. The zeal of the Lord God will do it. Not our programs, not our government, not our educational institutions, none of that. The zeal of the Lord God will do it. Christmas, you see, is not a coping mechanism. It is Christ. Christmas is not a coping mechanism Christmas is Christ. It's not merely a little time off from work where you can get a break. Christmas is where we get to contemplate all of this and say, wait a minute, all of the gloom and all the darkness, all the anguish that Isaiah described for his people, man, I feel that in some ways. But oh, it's Christmas. (sighs) I'll be good now. I'll get along with my family because, you know, it's Christmas. Meaning once January comes, I'm going to let them have it, those people. No, 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 no. Christmas is not a coping mechanism. It is Christ. It changes everything. The thing that Isaiah looked forward to has happened. In Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 and 5, the Apostle Paul will pick up on this and he'll say, that thing that Isaiah was talking about, it has come to pass. It has happened in my lifetime. Paul says in Galatians 4, 4, at just the right time, at precisely the right moment, when it couldn't get any darker, when it couldn't get any more gloomy, you thought you had it bad under the Assyrians, and now we're under Rome. But at just the right time, God sent His Son. Not a superhero, not an army, not a mechanized war machine. He sent His own Son, God of God, born of a woman, Because you need someone who was born of a woman because you were born of a woman. He wasn't born on some distant ice planet to come out from us and try to save us. No, he became us. Born under law because every single one of us was born under law. Having to try to obtain and achieve the moral code of heaven which we could never do. To redeem those under law so that we might receive adoptions as sons. That means you too, ladies, that you would have the same status and right as firstborn males. It is a scandal. See, Jesus comes to give the gift. 
He gives the gift of joy. He gives the gift of worth. He gives the gift of faith. And He gives the gift of peace. Because if you really know who your Father is, and that He is good, and that He is strong, and that He wants better for you than you do, you have peace. And then you begin to reverberate joy and worth and faith and peace to those closest around you. And then the community begins to change. But you know what? I got a little geeky. I got a little Tiglath Pelissar the 30 there. So let me, let me step it back just a moment and uh, let's reapproach this. I want to recover the story, but I want to do it from Sally Lloyd Jones' perspective and her Jesus Storybook Bible. Since we started this morning with our children singing, I want to read the story again, very briefly, just from Sally Lloyd Jones' Jesus Storybook Bible. We'll start with Isaiah. Do you know what your name means? Well, there was once a man called Isaiah, and his name meant God to the rescue. That might sound like a bit of a funny name to you, but it was just the right name for Isaiah, because God had a special job for Isaiah. You see, Isaiah's job was to listen to God and then tell people what he heard. Now, God let Isaiah know a secret. God was going to mend his broken world. He showed Isaiah his secret rescue plan, Operation No More Tears. This is the message God gave Isaiah. It was like a letter God wrote to his children. The letter says, Dear little flock, you're all wandering away from me, like sheep in an open field. You've always been running away from me, and now you're lost. You can't find your way back. But I can't stop loving you. I will come to find you. So I'm sending you a shepherd to look after you and love you, to carry you home to me. You've been stumbling around like people in a dark room. But into the darkness, a bright light will shine. It will chase away all the shadows like sunshine. A little baby will be born, a royal son. His mommy will be a young girl who doesn't have a husband. His name will be Emmanuel, which means God has come to live with us. He is one of King David's children's children's children, the Prince of Peace. Yes, someone is going to come and rescue you, but he won't be who anyone expects. He will be a king, but he won't live in a palace. And he won't have lots of money. He will be poor, and he will be a servant. But this king will heal the whole world. He will be a hero. He will fight for his people and rescue them from their enemies. But he won't have big armies. And he won't fight with swords. He will make the blind see. He will make the lame leap like deer. He will make everything the way was always meant to be. But people will hate him. And they won't listen to him. He will be like a lamb. He will suffer and die. It's the secret rescue plan we made from before the beginning of the world. It's the only way to get you back, but he won't stay dead. I will make him alive again, and one day when he comes back to rule forever, the mountains and trees will dance and sing for joy. The earth will shout out loud. His fame will fill the whole earth. As the waters cover the sea, everything sad will come untrue. Even death is going to die. And he will wipe away every tear from every eye. Yes, the rescuer will come. Look for him. Watch for him. Wait for him. He will come. I promise. And then we fast forward. He's here. 
Everything was ready. The moment God had been waiting for was here at last. God was coming to help His people, just as He promised in the beginning. But how would He come? What would He be like? What would He do? Mountains would have bowed down. Seas would have roared. Trees would have clapped their hands. But the earth held its breath. As silent as snow falling, He came in. And when no one was looking, in the darkness, He came. There was a young girl who was engaged to a man named Joseph. Joseph was the great-great-great-great-great-grandson of King David. One morning, the girl was minding her own business when suddenly a great warrior of light appeared. Right there in her bedroom, he was Gabriel. And he was an angel, a special messenger from heaven. When she saw the tall, shining man standing there, Mary was frightened. You don't need to be scared, Gabriel said. God is very happy with you. Mary looked around to see if perhaps he was talking to someone else. Mary, Gabriel said, and he laughed with such gladness that Mary's eyes filled with sudden tears. Mary, you're going to have a baby, a little boy. You will call him Jesus. He is God's own son. He's the one. He's the rescuer. The God who flung planets into space and kept whirling around and around. The God who made the universe with just a word. The one who could do anything at all was making himself small and coming down as a baby. Wait, God was sending a baby to rescue the world? But it's too wonderful, Mary said and felt her heart beating hard. How can it be true? Is anything too wonderful for God? Gabriel asked. So Mary trusted God more than what her eyes could see and she believed. I'm God's servant, she said. Whatever God says, I will do. Sure enough, it was just as the angel had said. Nine months later, Mary was almost ready to have her baby. Now Mary and Joseph had to take a trip to Bethlehem, the town King David was from. But when they reached the little town, they found every room was full. Every bed was taken. Go away, the innkeepers told them. There isn't any place for you. Where would they stay? Soon Mary's baby would come. They couldn't find anywhere except an old, tumble-down stable. So they stayed there where the cows and the donkeys and the horses stayed. And there, in the stable, amongst the chickens and the donkeys and the cows, in the quiet of the night, God gave the world His wonderful gift. The baby that would change the world was born, His baby son. Mary and Joseph wrapped Him up to keep Him warm. They made a soft bed of straw and used the animal's feeding trough as His cradle. And they gazed in wonder at God's great gift wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. Mary and Joseph named him Jesus, Emmanuel, which means God has come to live with us because, of course, he had. See, that's the Christmas story. Isaiah had no way of knowing that there would actually be two separate arrivals of this promised one. All he could see was Jesus far off in the distance but we now know that He has come and that He will come again. So if you're up for it, I would challenge you to open your Bible back up to go to Isaiah chapter 9. Go to verse 6. And where it says us, for unto us, draw a little circle around it, draw a little line out to your margin, and write me. For unto me. This child is given. And so now, 
every day of the year, I can have joy. I can have worth. I can have faith. I can have peace. Regardless of what it looks like or how it feels, this is true. Merry Christmas. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for who you are, for what you have done in Christ to redeem us to yourself and, praise God, to one another. Father, it's an astonishing scandal of grace to think about what Paul will later develop in Romans 5 when he says that we now have peace with you. That you look at us and knowing all of our apathy, all of our arrogance, all of our anger, you still say that we're good. That there's nothing between us because this promised one has not only conquered sin and death, he's conquered my sin and death. And so we have peace. Shalom. Thank you for Christmas. Father, if there's one in this room this morning who does not know you, who might know some things about you, God, I pray that you will move irresistibly by your Spirit and lead them into a saving knowledge of your Son, Jesus, that they would step out of darkness and gloom into light and life. Father, we pray that this Christmas we would be able to see through the Rudolph and the snowman and all the other things and that we would not allow even the nativity scene to become just myth and legend, but that we would receive the gift that you, our Father, could not wait to give us in Christ. Father, we love you because you loved us first. We pray all these things in the power of your Spirit and in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thanks again for listening to the podcast today. We hope that you were blessed and encouraged. And if you have any questions or comments, we want you to let us know. Simply send your thoughts to questions at BethelBible.com. Thanks for spending time with us and be sure to join us next week on the Bethel Bible Podcast.